Henrik, anything else until we come to scene by scene? I guess the most pressing question is why on God's green earth we are once again doing this? Why we are covering this film? Yeah, Your excuses, course. because we are once again meeting with Korean Peninsula on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, because God, God help us, if, if the Korean Peninsula hasn't been the most visited location of this podcast. We've covered, <laughs> we have covered the Peninsula actually more than we have covered, for example, fin- Finnish films. Right. So, <laughs> outside of American movies, this is the most visited location that we have. Yep. Hopefully. And it's, it's gonna continue like that. Keeping to my promise there. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Flick Lab. The number one of Korean mm. podcast in, in Finnish podcasting world. Probably true. I'm Kari. I'm like I'm already looking for a second home from, from South Korea. Too expensive. My co-host is Henrik, of course. And as far as our permits to talk about cinema, I studied audiovisual communication. Henrik studies art in the University of Lapland. So we're from Finland. I live in Malaga, though, in Spain, and Henrik remains amongst the reindeer pals in this godforsaken permafrost zone in Rovaniemi. And we both have the the luxurious Finnish rally accent. So, you know, enjoy the butchering of the entire English language. We actually acknowledge the problem here. We have a rally accent. At least Henrik has. It, ah. it, it, it's part, part of the exotism of, of this podcast. Please try to cope with us. And if you start pleading from both ears, please contact the medical professional immediately. Then you know what, what it is to have a, have a discussion with a Finnish person. You can say that you have had an authentic Finnish experience. You're pissed off and your both ears are pleading. What we do here is analyze world cinema. We don't discriminate when it comes to a country of origin or film genre. Although we do like South Korea. At least I do. Yeah, yeah we do discriminate based on any other attributes. <laughs> <laughs> We're never political. It, it's it's that, ty- type of, that type of open film podcast. <laughs> About the structure quickly. It's such that we first introduce you to the cast and crew of the the films and history around the current topic that we are discussing and then we start dissecting, reviewing, analyzing each film that we are about to focus on. And finally we finish off with the quickies and yes, I know that sounds kinky, but it only means that it's something that we uh, we kind of look at the different categories of the, of the films as a whole and then give our final verdicts in the different quick questions that we have. In, in, in the short 30 minute time slot. Yeah quick is indeed yeah and uh yes we also acknowledge <laughs> that we have g- given attention to the so-called uh boil up genre uh, and not girl or, or trans films or any of the other categories of lgbt cinema but this is something that we want to rectify at some point down the line the fact of course is that the it just happens that i have a bit of an expertise on this this gay field of cinema but I think we could do more with uh, some guests that might know a little bit more. 
that most definitely is not gonna happen today, as as oh. everybody soon finds out. Uh, there, of course, is is the fact that some uh, a lot of these questions are extremely hard and difficult to approach, especially, for example, the, the questions uh, questions surrounding the trans identity, especially coming from what essentially is to cis guys. I, I fear it easily turns into, once again, a damned if you do, damned if you don't type of situation where, well, if we don't approach trans cinema at any point, well, then we are guilty of, of not shining a light on, on trans cinema. And if we do, we, we extremely easily fall into the, the cis guys are explaining trans identity failure. But today's director is Ison Huil. He's best known for a film that is considered the, the first quote-unquote real Korean gay feature called No Regret. And there have been other South Korean films that had dealt with the homosexual identity and homosexuality, but not in the way of a gay drama, that this is a full-blown gay drama, if you will. Isong Huil is openly gay, and he often addresses social prejudices in, in society in his films. And not only when it comes to the, the, the gay identity or the whatever gay issues that you might have in the Korean society, issues as a whole. But maybe the most of most of all in in one film that we're gonna discuss, I believe, as the last one in our curriculum today. He also did open uh, a gay school or a school that was concerned about the human rights of teenage homosexuals in 1998, and then he passed on this project to his friend. And uh, unfortunately, this school is currently closed now. Yeah, that that what te- tends to happen when you give give your passion projects to your friends. <laughs> What do we have on our plates here today, Henrik? Uh, today we have... What do we have? Uh, something like five films, uh, three short movies, two, two, two long ones. No, six films, because there's six. also four, four short films and, and two long features. Yeah, that's right. So I was thinking of starting or going in the chronological order year was Camellia Project and then No Regret... White Night, Suddenly Last Summer, Going South, and finally Night Flight. So this covers pretty much as, as much as you can find of the director's works online. And and then the rest, uh, there's a lot of gaps that we have in our, our knowledge when it comes to the beginnings of the director's works. And also uh, the latest works, they are not quite so well available. I know that the director has been dabbling in also, kind of other other subjects than just gay cinema. We do know that uh, the first credited film for him is a 1998 film, as always, Sunday. Zero information about that, so that's kind of useless information for you. Then he made Sugar Hill, a 23-minute short film about uh, homosexuality, based on a true story featuring two gay men who love each each other. But then there is a uh, the triad drama with the lady. Then we have from 2001, A Good Romance, a story based on the counterside, uh, I believe a short film. Then in 2002, we have uh, Such a Songo. I-, I don't know if there is an actual translation for this film. Such a Songo, and there's a segment called Forage Hunters. 
which the director of the night has directed. There were actually five different kind of episodes by different directors in this film. Uh, 2003, <clears throat> kind of a X-rated title, Say That You Wanna Fuck Me. And then we get to the 2006, there's conflict in information, I believe. The Camellia project that we will talk about. Then the director made the aforementioned 2006 No Regret. And 2009, there was a film called Show Me the Money, with different segments once again. And he directed a part called Life Thriller. Uh, this sounds pretty interesting uh, from the director's remarks, because he tried to kind of capture what it would be if if a family would be in a financial trouble all of a sudden because there's a storyline about fam family collapsing because of collapsing stocks and then everything goes to hell at the same time. A series of abnormal events, family breakdown, suicides, crimes, insurance murders, everything crashing on at once. Then in 2009 there's a film called Breakaway, 109 minutes, a proper feature here, uh, depicting uh, six Six most desperate days of three people. There are two guys who desert the army, and then a huge, uh, huge operation ensues where they try to chase these guys down, and they're accompanied by by one lady. And then 2012, White Knight, which we will talk about. 2012, suddenly last summer. 2012, going south. These are all part of this melodrama trilogy. Thematical similarities here. 2014 Night Flight, which is the last one that we we will talk about today. And in 2016, he made a 45 to 49 minutes long film that is based on Chirisan Mountains, where something weird is going to happen. I believe it has nothing to do with, with uh, LGBT subject, but since there is very little information about this online, I can't really tell you, but... That's my overview of the direction in a fast package for you. Yeah, we unfortunately, once again, it, it seems that we landed on, on a director and, and filmography that is, is not really that well no, known nor distributed out, outside of his home country. And because of that, even though the director may be extremely well known, for example, in South Korea, and, and these films may be very easy to get your hands on and well known there, for us to actually find information or even to find all of these films that we are going to talk about today proved out to be quite the challenge. Then again, to me, it seems that most of the director's works are seriously unavailable to everyone and that most of these films, especially the short films, would be something that you see in a festival hey, maybe on a one day and then it's gone forever type of a deal. That was kind of my understanding too. Like like from the little information that was I was able to find about the director, when it came to, well, of course, I, I had to retort back to, to using, using Western and um, English language sources in in my background work but almost all the all the notions that i found about his films being shown anywhere or, or the stories i saw his films somewhere they were all festival stories yeah fortunately there is some interviews from the director that will be a huge help in this episode would it be camellia project then uh, well, why not? It's uh, it's perhaps the best place to start to go over these films. 
Yeah, so I believe we are going to talk about only the segment that belongs to Ison Krill. Yeah, yep. Oh, I I really am not home enough with the entire film to talk about the two other segments. Yeah, so this is once again a film that consists of three segments. And the final segment, the third one, belongs to Ison Krill. This film, or these films, they appear as if they have been filmed as some kind of a, what we have in Finland, this, is it called Uneton 24H, this sleepless 24 hours where you're supposed to do a film in a very rapid manner in, inside 24 hours and actually come up with something watchable. Yeah, it's a film competi- competition that uh, you, that is a big deal for example the film students in finland they are one major participant segment in in sleepless 24 hours it's it appears that some cheap home camcorder has been used in filming this so that got me wondering but then again they are quite elaborate and they have some uh, set pieces and equipment that makes me think that this was probably taking more than 24 hours must have been obviously it's kind of hard to tell with with these segments, even even with our main segment, La Traviata, because um, I I kind of got this exactly this the same vibe as you did. There there is a lot that to me screams like well to put it bluntly, a student work festival festival short film had this had. For example, La Traviata. Had it been shown to me as as one of one of the short films in in Sleepless Twenty Four Hours, I would have immediately said, "Well, obviously that's a film that belongs in into the festival." Or had it been the case that this would have been director's first film that he ever did, like or or some kind of a graduation piece from a from a film school. I would have immediately been like, well, obviously. In fact, before I I started to check his his backlog and saw that he had made two other short films, I was extremely confident on my assessment that this was his first short film ever. And this would have been some kind of a, you know, final work for film school type ordeal. Exactly, and all of these three segments have been filmed apparently on Bogil Island, one of those South Korean islands. Seems to be a popular tourist destination. So definitely feels like it was some kind of a student project. And uh, this is the beginnings. It's gonna look a little bit different technically uh, later on. So anyway, here we have a story. We have a lady who enters the island and is Apparently looking for her ex-lover, ex-lover who, who now is living apparently in a happy relationship with with a guy. And this lady seems to be jealous of the situation and then tries to locate this ex-lover and throws a tantrum. Well, she's looking for something. Like, like to, to go, go, go through your synopsis again. Uh, what we are dealing with in La Traviata, we have a mysterious woman who speaks as as little as possible until the the 
and twist approaches. Uh, kind of just, you know, takes a ferry, comes to the island, uh, wanders around in, in this, this mysterious haze. There's obviously deep, dark package and with her and you name it. But basically, you know, since you mentioned the sleepless 24 hours and we talked about student films, kind of, kind of the your go-to tool set of of a student film. Bunch of shots that do not really connect. Uh, a main character who. Seems to have been directed simply by you know stating that that you have a secret, be mysterious about it, and she translates that those those instruc instructions as I just kind of wander from place to place and and do random shit. Where on occasion it comes clear that there is some type of of goal to my actions. It's a mix up of those. There's also a whole bunch of well technical. Goofs that that happened, for example, the the gamma is, is mm. kind of all over the place. There there are see there are shots that have more zebras than goddamn zoos, <laughs> and it, it kind of the, the film just revolves like that until you reach the the, the final twist, and that, then the film kind of quickly ends after that twist has been shown to you. In in La Traviata, the twist. Apparently, is is that it's it's hard to say. It's I, I read say. that that the the woman's husband has has killed himself because he has had an extramarital affair with another another guy, and that guy has has left the left the the lady's husband, and now lady tracks down that his uh, her husband's ex lover. To, to have a face off with him, and then then the film ends with with the with the lover leaving the island and I guess returning back to the city where they they used to live before, and that's it. It is quite confusing at the last moments of the film. The the lover boy of this ex-husband doesn't know what's going on but says that his guy is going to land finally so he's off to somewhere but the lady seems to remain on the island with this with this younger guy partner and, yeah, and apparently now he has has the lover boy's house yeah. herself keys are given yeah and which is kind of what, what is the the switch here like the lover boy, does he now move back to the to the ladies' flat on 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 city or on on that another location where he he you know goes to or boards the the ferry to and and then the lady would would stay on the lover boy's flat and and how long is this arrangement? Like, will the lover boy come back to the island and the lady would then return back to wherever? she originally came from and we have a shot of the ferry which seemed to indicate to me that she is now heading somewhere outside of the island but the final shot scene of the film is her grabbing the camellia flowers supposedly on the island but i'm not so sure anymore it's 
I have no idea what's going on. Yeah, I, I took that that she stays on the island and and the tree from which she's, she's picking those followers would be one of the trees that, that you saw not well, but they were kind of hinted that they existed there mm. in, in that one forest scene, which is spent entirely to show, show to you that she goes to the woods to have a peace. <laughs> yeah. because w w once again w w once again <clears throat> the, the toolbox of a student film there, there's a reason why i i honestly believe that this this would have been the director's first film and that this would have been some kind of a closing of of, of his studies in a film school finishing student project and it's it's not just it's not just that the the con contrast errors and and the directs and the directing that apparently has been given to the cast uh, and not even even exactly the way how how the shots are being uh, being filmed or how the story is being told, but also because because there are these these kind of your hallmark student film film scenes like for example simply but you know go, going to the woods simply to have a piece just so that that you have it in the film because that's somehow outlandish act to, to do which te telegraphs to the audiences that art yeah that peeing moment reminded me of stray dogs where this kind of a same event happens without crying yeah, uh, in in Stray Dogs, I I took it more as an as a kind of act of desperation. Once again, yeah, the, the the characters in Stray Dogs being poor and being homeless, and therefore not having the opportunity to go indoors, and they would kind of have to do this self humiliating act of relieving themselves outdoors. That's kind of my my take on on the the. Or the peeing in, in Stray Dogs. It doesn't completely translate to La Traviata because in mm. La Traviata's case, however, the lady is of such of a social status that she very easily could find herself an indoors toilet where, yeah. where to do the peeing. So kind of calling special attention simply to the act of taking a piece once again, in, in here, in La Traviata, kind of a student film moment. The me. events of the film appeared to me quite logical and following each other in a logical way until we kind of got to this this five minutes or so where yeah, she goes to be in the forest. Just kind of takes her time, I guess, to salivate the idea that, okay, am I going to stay <laughs> at, this, at this lodge or not? She decides to spent the night there but yeah when it comes to zebras or overexposure in a moving taxi with a cheap camcorder i'm i'm sure that that's kind of unav unavoidable so i give them that much this uh speaking little the little speaking lead characters this is a recurring theme in the director's films and it kind of gives this uh, kind of a, a added interest into the characters where the story little by little unfolds and not only because somebody's not talking, but this slow reveal in general in his films. Uh, as an example, definitely suddenly last summer, definitely going south. And especially White Night, where we are introduced to an entirely new plot twist 
where you kind of thought the film was something, but then it's kind of a completely another thing in the next moment. It 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 kind of does that, but it also kind of also makes you contemplate on axe murder. What? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I can't lie to you. Goddamn, if it didn't become irritating after after wa- wa- watching X amount of of films back to back and seeing that the exact same goddamn thing happens from one film to the next. At some point I was I was so fed up with, with this this whole somebody proposing you a question and you not answering. You you proposing a question but just kind of half of the question and never actually following with your statement or question through you just leave the rest to hang in the air and it it works, yeah, but like we we watch six movies and and they all every single one of them does does this thing and and it it was like like movie four where I was starting finally to think that, that ha- would I be be in this situation I I might just you know pick pick up a rock and just smack someone in the head be like just finish the fucking sentence will you. Okay, well, yeah, yeah. In some films, this started to get quite annoying, especially in White Knight and Night Flight. In White Knight, you have the the the, the steward, who it's definitely used as a tactic for the character that he's, as the director has stated himself, that it's used as as a tactic that he is supposed to talk as little as possible to just let it unfold slower. But and I don't see it much in the, the other films, not to the any kind of uh, annoyance levels. I just couldn't help but not to notice it after after I had reached the exaggeration point. I actually felt that the, the way that the stories at least unfold, like piece by piece, was uh, really nice to me, and it kept the, the the film kind of refreshing all the way through that you were able to find more about the characters as you go and not in the way that you just introduce them. Hi, I'm like this and you are like this and okay, that's it. It it, it works on, on some, some of the films, but it, it didn't work for me in all of the movies. I, I do think that there, there were storylines that kind of benefited more from this tactic. White Knight is, is one of them. Uh, Going south. Uh, going south, yeah, yeah, that that benefit is also, but I I'm not entirely certain about the rest of them. At least not necessarily in, into any any large margin. No no regret. It, it it benefits from the tactic partly, but not fully, in in my opinion. And suddenly last summer, the. Um, didn't I, I think suddenly last summer and and night night flight are are pe- perhaps the two films that that benefited the least from the characters talking this way or or, or the director pulling the tactic. Okay. Hmm. Then again, I felt that in suddenly last summer it was probably the the least important for revealing. Uh, anything or in a way that when something was revealed it was like 
yeah, okay, but it, it wasn't anything major because you already knew that the twist is that, well, you have this, this boy who is uh, infatuated by this older teacher and yeah, no problem. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Suddenly last summer is, is extremely obvious. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of from the scene one, you, like the fir- first scene establishes the the older character as the teacher and pretty soon it's established that the, the younger character is, is his student and y- you piece it together from there. But oh, of course, something that, that goes into this, uh, and it, it's not the only only tactic that the director use, uses, but something that I did notice was that there was this kind of power play dynamic in, in all of his films. There, there is this, there's this type of master-slave dynamic that repeats between the main characters of the film. Someone has the power over the, over the other, and usually the... The, the kind of spin that these movies have, if they have one, it it comes from diverting or subverting that that dynam- dynamic. Uh, suddenly, last summer, perhaps the easiest e- example or, or film to use as an example. Uh, it starts right off the bat with with very very open power power dynamic. Uh, one character is older and a teacher. And the second character is younger and and a student. So there is a older man, younger boy, and teacher student. Two power dy- dynamics already at play. And the in suddenly last summer, the the main subversion or, or the main twist when it comes to power dynamics is that the student and uh, blackmails the teacher. So there, there's a reverse of that power me- mechanic. Now now the student is the one holding the cards and the teacher has to kind of deal with the situation. And in in many ways, uh, the, the whole, this, this whole act of character speaking in half sentences or not answering questions proposed to, to them, it, it's also one form of this power dynamic. Uh, it's perhaps White Knight is, is the one that mostly showcases a character using using this, this not opening, not answering, not actually saying anything. And if he says it's this half mysterious, half sentence thing as a tool of control over the other character. So there is, of course, that. And kudos to the director. Yeah, yeah, it's somewhat smart. It's, it's somewhat interesting. But once again, my, my main problem, my main problem is, is not that the characters do this. My main problem became that I watched six films where this happened constantly in a time span of two weeks. Would I would it would there have been fewer movies or would have there been more time to watch them and kind of splice them up so that I wouldn't have had to watch them in such of a hurry? Perhaps it wouldn't be have been such a problem for me. And maybe not only a power dynamic, but something that these characters have gone through in different professions. The director 
didn't mean to there be any kind of a financial gap between the characters or societal gap in the characters or societal difference. But that is something that might also kind of be there. But what, what is most interesting for me is... What, 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 like, like on accident? It it wasn't meant to be there, but it just kind of slipped past the director into the film. I, I kind of don't buy that. Well, it's not something that is in all of the films. It's not there in Going South. In Suddenly Last Summer, well, they are from different generations, so there is that, but that's not really the, the something that jumps to your face as a factor. No, then again, no regret is nothing but built around the, the, the uh, about the class divide between the yeah. two main characters. Well, that is true. But in A White Night, I kind of found interesting that where it's it's still the film where it's this not talking is driven to the extreme from the director. But at the same time, I kept wondering what it would be like. And I tried to emphasize with the character what it would be like to be a steward, to have experienced uh, this kind of a violent moment and return to South Korea after three years. And what the kind of a life or the, the thinking of a steward is because you you don't you don't you don't often probably have this kind of a normal life quote unquote where you would go to your home every night and maybe you go to your home once in a week i i seriously don't know but this lack of connecting with people or their lives or connecting with the surrounding environment everything is just uh you stay there for a couple of hours watch david attenborough on tv and then you jump in jump into thailand or or south korea or vietnam or who knows so I believe the, the, the kind of a fascination about the land out there or having holidays or enjoying different scenery, that is all crumbled down and destroyed. Well, that is quite often reported problem that stewardess and, well, airline pilots also kind of face. It's kind of one of those... those occupational downsides as as far as i've understood from from uh, from my conversations between uh, with, with the airline workers yeah to a point where i think it would suck out the romanticism from your life and not knowing where you belong what you, what are you doing where are your friends what is your life yeah it's it's kind of also, the most often given reason to, you may have noticed in, in your travels, for example, why all, all the hotel rooms always have the Bible or at least the New Testament. It's, it's at least partly because of this, just so that the, the nomads who regularly sleep in hotel rooms, they would kind of have some kind of a grounding element to them. So... What about his next film? I I guess we are landing on No Regret here now, which is is a heartwarming tale of a guy trying to keep a job in today's economy. Yeah, yeah, very heartwarming and kind of surprising to me now revisiting the film because I kept thinking that this, this film would have been a completely different storyline, but okay, it's this film. This is the film that changed the South Korean gay film industry 
and kind of opened opened it up. It's hard to believe because, well, well, of course this film might benefit for the fact that it's not this kind of a, it's not forcing itself. It doesn't read in the headlines that hello, I'm here to support the LGBT community and make things better for you. No, there are so interesting twists and turns here that it kind of wants to avoid the kind of the, the, the cliche of the genre, maybe if you will. It's just taking it into a humorous and really dark directions. I don't know about humorous dark most definitely. Uh, something that no regret is, it is openly gay film. Like when you sent the lineup to, to me and told me what we are going to watch for today's episode, this was the one, if I remember correctly, in, in which you remarked that this was South Korea's first proper mm. gay movie. And I kind of see how how that came to be. Because the homosexuality is is something that most definitely is is not in the sidelines, in no regret. In La Traviata, if we compare the two, uh, that too in the end is is openly gay. Like the gay relationship in La Traviata is is very clear to you. It's not. It's not. Uh, one once once. The lady comes to the hostel and and the night falls upon upon the hostel that the gay relationship that exists becomes extremely clear but it it's something that is being spared in la traviata as kind of final twist it's a, it's the it's the final twist that you find out that that these two people are gay and that the the woman's husband is somehow is connected to one side of the gay couple. And No Regret, on the other hand, it's it's gay from the first scene onwards. Yeah, it pulls all the punches and goes into the dark territory of sex work. Interesting that you would like to play with these themes in this this kind of a first entry into the market in South Korea, but that's exactly what it does. It, it pulls the punches and it doesn't avoid any subject. It's kind of in your face. A film that was popular with the 20 or so year old girls. Don't know how this has changed now that the kind of the gay films are part and parcel of, of cinema nowadays. But at the time it was like that. You barely could apparently find guys in the audience. But it was hugely successful. 40,000 to 60,000 admissions in South Korea. And of course this was uh, coming out at a time when this was still, as a subject, it was kind of new. And nowadays there's nothing special about having gays in films or dramas or TV series. It's all there, all the time. It kind of is. And I'm not saying it's becoming a problem to me. But it's something that I kind of am starting to feel now as we are closing in what is like like the third year of of doing this podcast. At this point, when it comes to the Flick Lab and and the cinema that deals with the topic of homosexuality in, in some light or the other, we have actually seen so many movies 
already in this podcast that that even if if you would think that for example a, a cis straight person like me there would be some type of exorcism in in seeing gay cinema it's it's already faded uh there, there is there's no no remains of any any type of oh well it it's so so strange and new to, to see um, a film from gay cinema anymore at this at this point of of my podcasting career and when it comes to gay cinema altogether like gay cinema as an as a as a as a as a, as a subgenre or or a form of, of cinema I, i would say that society and globally we are also kind of reaching that point where there's no longer anything special in a movie itself just because it's it's gay cinema mm. like something something that you pointed out to me in preparation for for this episode was that at this point there and i didn't know this previously but that there even exists a netflix type of streaming mm. service specialized especially and and solely on on gay cinema so it's become very much commandized at this point it's it's kind of well it's it's not exactly every day and it's not exactly yet yet like hollywood marvel film type mainstream but the the gap is closing is extremely fast it seems to be a very big sub industry in cinema where they are actually just pushing and pushing out in asia for example a lot of these boy love films and there was a documentary that they released quite recently that was published also in this page that we used for our research purposes gagaolala.com where you see the problems that start to surface in the industry and uh, some sexual misconduct uh, that has been happening there and how people are taken for cheap these inexperienced actors to to play in these films and the the horrific stuff that some of them have had to experience for just simply trying to be an actor in a film okay i i must confess i, w- I was too blind and dumb to, to find this this documentary on on gaga online of course gaga online's own search function made made no services Kakaolala, yeah. On 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 finding the documentary, so when it comes to to this side of 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 the production of gay cinema, I I have to leave that Paul Park unfortunately solely to you. But something that that uh, since you mentioned it, something that did pique my eye and something that I did find find curious was exactly how how much of of the gay cinema seems to be coming from asia so it seems yeah so it seems it it's truly the kind of experience that you would come to netflix and there is so much material that you don't really know where to start from so you're not running out and a lot of it is from asia like you said but yeah. it, it was something i i am really interested in in finding out why why this is why it's why Gaga Online, for example, is so full of full of Asian movies and not, for example, American gay cinema. Yeah, I just have to correct you there. It's gagaolala.com. But no regret. So it, it stars Eon Jun, 
who plays Lee So Min. He also did starring Good Romance from director Lee Sung Hill and has performed numerous times on stage in, at university. Starred also in the horror thriller The Guard Post. Then we have Kim Nam Gil, who plays uh, Song Jae Min. He's an actor, producer, businessman, singer, philanthropist, you name it. Maybe you have seen him in the blockbuster Pandora, or maybe you have seen, it in, seen him in Memoir of a Murderer, adventure film. Any of those ring a bell? The later one does. Uh, or, or the first one, depending on how you count. The Memories of Murder. Yeah, this is Memoir of a Murderer. Murderer. In that case, no. Yeah. God damn, the, the memories also start to blend in together. <laughs> like, like, fix your naming, please. This is coming a running nightmare. When it comes to naming, it, I can't count you the times, how many times I got confused and I would put the notes of White Knight into the night flight and vice versa. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, yeah. That, that also. Like, they take example of Finland where every second film is just called The Unknown Soldier and, and the release date following. Yeah, that, uh, that, that's, that, that's, that's clear and easy and simple. Yeah, Finland makes only films called Unknown Soldier. And occasionally Salatut Elämät, horror movie. It, it, it's the nightmare franchise. They, they are just nightmare. <laughs> also seeing them is a nightmare. <laughs> Haven't had the pleasure. <laughs> oh boy. But yeah, no regret. <clears throat> so you have this portal of guys who are selling themselves and then there happens to be one rich business guy who seems to be in love with one of those those uh, walking meats, let's say, in a beautiful fashion. And actually, like you mentioned, there is this kind of... Uh, pushback from this, or I don't know if you said it, but th th this is one of those occasions where in the director's films you have this intense pushback against this one character. And he's totally not into this rich guy. But this seems to change, and then there's misunderstandings, and this leads into uh, the, the horror side of, of the story, where... This uh, stripper hooker guy now is trying to bury this rich guy for his misdeeds, apparently. Yeah, no regret to put it extremely plainly. In the end, it's it's very much, it's a gender-flipped and more serious version of Pretty Woman with Julia Roberts and Rick, Richard Gere. There, there's not that, you know, murder by burial, burial, burial attempt in, in Pretty Woman. So that's new. I feel that No Regret is still not quite there visually. I just, there's something that doesn't quite re resonate with me and the, and the kind of unbelievable flips that the film keeps, ha keeps having. This furious push pushback and... Then they finally begin a relationship, and then that cascades into a nightmare. Of course, I think yeah, it, this is no, more no. Play, played for some kind of a laughs at this point. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I don't know if, if anything is played for laughs in, in No Regret, but there is some, some parts of what, what I take 
unintentional hilarity that at least I found from it. Like you know, keep, keeping with with the, the the social power balance between the the characters and well, keeping with with Pretty Woman and its its take on on capitalism, you gotta have a switch here where the discounted ex factory worker who now works as a prostitute, and when 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 our main character was being fired from the factory he was kind of figuratively fucked in the ass by his boss and by by proxy the boss's son and now now later in the film he finally can take a petty revenge on on the on the son by literally fucking him in the ass and calling and then calling him disgusting and threatening to kill him what do you think happens by the end when they're in the car the other other guy is sorry and not sure if the uh, the rich guy is able to forgive at this point, but I'm, I'm, I I have no doubts. Maybe that's possible. The... I I took it that that that's the ending. I for the life of me, I can't really say or guess what that would mean for the characters, because uh, well, well, well. To our listeners who have not yet seen No Regret and who may not have account on gagaulala.com, the, the main conflict in in the film that that appears on the la on, on the second half of the movie is that it turns out that the 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 golden boy the the, the boss's son uh, apparently has been keeping up appearances and has kind of half-heartedly dated this one woman to a point where they are now supposed to, to get married. And uh, the son's parents are both extremely heavily pushing for the marriage to happen. And this is, this is the reason, reason for, for them breaking up and why, why the prostitute eventually decides that the best course of action here is to to violently hijack the son and bury him alive in in some pack of woods a prostitute doesn't go through with the plan halts the proceedings on on the last minute which leads into both of them eventually getting out of the woods in in the same car the film ends in that se- in in that specific car inside of the car when they are at least in my opinion they are making up and and, and kind of forgiving each other what has happened which yeah. of course of course is is a is a sweet they continue continue together ending except for the small part that the ceo's son is still supposed to get married with the woman and his parents are still extremely heavily pushing for that marriage to happen. So exactly how are they going to be together after the credits end? Well, maybe the experiences have been so strong that they are able to push back against the arranged marriage. This is kind of interesting about the South Korean culture or any of these cultures where you being at the top is so important that, and the people that you associate with is so important that you apparently have to just you know marry somebody who is also 
very much at the top in the same social social class at least anyway in this last scene of the film there is this crotch grab moment which the police also <laughs> is there to witness and i believe this crotch grab is kind of a a thing that happens in so many of his, his films that I think it's kind of like the trademark of the director. Kind of, yeah. These, with the, with the, well, I, I give you half an answer type of dialogue, but grabbing somebody's crotch is also something that happens in every single one of these outside of La Traviata. Except in Night Flight. Is there no crotch crap in... I don't think so because the lead is so nice towards this gangster boy and it really never gets into that such of a hot territory. I, I can't can't say say for certain. No regret is 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 the one where basically the power dynamic first rears it it its head it, extremely strongly. Malatraviata um, had this to to some extent it basically came came in for came in the form of of the lady no having the having the secret and knowing the part of the background of of one side of the gay couple but in in no regrets you you have this really intrusive and really asshole kind of attitude and this really privilege take on power on 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 the from the side of the ceo's son this is this is a dude who is on top of the food chain and who even though not necessarily directly but knows that that someone who he is being fascinated with has been laid off from his his job and when he finally finds Finds that someone now working as a as a prostitute in a seedy nightclub. What what happens is is that the CEO's son just continues causing ruckus at the nightclub. This way, endangering the dude's new job as a prostitute because he might be be fired from the club simply because one customer is co- causing so much trouble. And this is something that that the CEO's son apparently never even stops to think about no no it's true love it just takes over an hour to get to the point where they are together and when they finally are then the the club keepers get to tell the 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 worker there that haha i told you so it was destined to fail I don't know you know when it came to with those type of antics when it comes to the the ending of the film and and the murder burial attempt. No, I I would have just you know keep the shovel going. Good riddance. <laughs> My life is so much fucking easier without you. <laughs> yeah, it was surprising that the the the, the personnel would keep him even we- working at this this club because that rich businessman was causing such of a ruckus here that maybe just easier to get rid of the stripper. Yeah. And I, I didn't even even fully buy buy this this CEO son's all powering affection towards the stripper because once again this is a romance that starts from what essentially is just one short accidental drive with a goddamn Uber driver while you are drunk 
Like that, that's, wh- that's where this Earth Saturn romance originally is supposed to start. From, from that early point in the film, when our main character, who at that point in time still ha- has the, the, the job as an Uber driver or some type of type of taxi service, and goes on and picks the son who is now blind drunk from some bar, and they have a quick quick discussion while while main character is driving driving the son to her to his apartment. Then again, and that that somehow is is like all that love blooms from this moment. Well, then again, we are watching a movie and we are concentrating on a point where some character has something interesting to share us in in the point of his life that might be the most interesting chapter of his life. For example, here we have in all of these films some character who is who chooses kind of a target and is in completely enamored with that with that said target. So all of many of these films let me just just see well, no regret. Su- no regret. Suddenly, last summer, going south, they are all about lust and being obsessed about something. And in a way, I kind of respect that. Uh, that you have decided that okay, I choose you. I'm willing to go the the million miles for you. So it's kind of romantic, isn't it? In in my opinions, no. It's actually somewhat troubling, and something that I found really interesting from what you just said was the word that you used, target. Because that actually is precisely what, what happens in these films. And no regret makes this previ- extremely obvious because uh, through symbolism, because no regret has a literal target practice scene at the shooting range. <laughs> I didn't think about it in that way. Neither didn't I until you know you you mentioned target. But but now that that now now that you know you know the word has been dropped, it <laughs> actually, you know, it, it makes perfect sense in a way. I once again I don't necessarily find it ex- exactly romantic. I I even see somewhat troubling and and disturbing realms. In, in in that type of behavior, but but yeah, in in no regret, our main character is a target mm. in more ways than one, you could say. Then again, I kept sometimes screaming almost inside my mind towards the lead actor that why are you so against this guy? Like, is it only because he has so much money? Why can't you just let him talk all that he has to talk? Maybe there is something to go for here because you like him anyway. Why push back so much? But I guess it was that he was very aware of maintaining some kind of a integrity that he would not be go- going with this rich guy only for the money or just... I don't know. Well, but then again, in the beginning he said that he is disgusting. <laughs> yeah, but then again, for, for his defense, there's really nothing for him going on with the rich guy. Yeah. I mean, but basically, when it comes to the dynamic, it, it draws, at least in my opinion, all, all the way back to the moment when, when our main character is being laid off from the factory. Or he's being kicked out, he's being fired. And it becomes clear that, well, well the dude who he, he gave, gave that Uber drive, 
that the one who becomes so fascinated with him is is the son of the CEO of the factory. But and even even like like after after the CEO's son found her main character now working as a prostitute in a city nightclub, that the son does actually nothing to help him, like nothing at all. It's it's not like, well, I I can you know do you want your old factory job back or I can try to talk to my dad so you can get a new job. Or hey, hey, here, here's at least here's the yellow pages if you want to look for a new job. It's it's fucking nothing, absolutely nothing, that that actually no benefit at all from from dating the son of a of a you know large company CEO. And to, to me, that kind of tells that the son wants to keep the power dynamic all the way through. Like, yeah, yeah, I, I really like you. I want to be with you. But God help it if you're not going to stay subservient to me. Mm, yeah, I don't know. I felt that he was mostly a pretty good guy. But where do you throw the suggestion that please join my company in in my office right now because he's pushing so much back against this guy? I don't know. I think that you know there was ample of opportunities to do for him to do that. Oh well, okay. Fair if enough. not previously, well, well, at least after they start dating, mm. or at least you know, apo- apologize the for for the dude getting fired. Like that's perhaps the least you can do. True. true. Once a prostitute, now, goddammit. But what I feel is comical, really, is that it goes into so crazy twists at the end. And that this guy is still so enamored about this prostitute guy. We're still gonna keep this even after you tried to bury me alive. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I know, I know, I know. Um, loves and love at the first sight and all of that, but but you know, it it was it was murder by bur- bur- being buried alive. Like, jeez. Yeah. yeah, but essentially, this doesn't really scream. Please accept LGBT. This is more like, let's let's throw in different genres. Let's th- let's throw a funny story and just do that. But to to kind of to to bring up the per- perhaps the hardest and the biggest question in in no regret, and this most likely is something that that you can help me with, okay. as as you are the more technical. In in this podcast, you you are you are the one who who more understands the statistics and physics and and how the how the technical aspects works within the films universes. But something that that I I couldn't just couldn't wrap my mind around is 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 the, in, during the the first lovemaking scene in in the hotel room when Sumin shoots his load into Chaimin's ass. And later, Sumin finds that his fingers are covered in cum and feathers. And I took it that the cum belonged to to Chaimin, judging from the Sumin's first impulse to start sucking his fingers. So, Kari, how on earth do actually the sperm physics work in this film? I have to be honest, I don't remember the scene in a very detailed way, but I remember there was something funky about that sperm. 
Well, 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 God damn it. I, I guess it has to, has to remain a forever mystery. And, and, unless our listeners will, will, you know, go on and, and check out the film. If you, if you do, please, please, you know, let us know on our Facebook page. <laughs> how, how exactly does one spur? Do you have the time code? No, no, I, I don't. Oh, I could have checked it out now. We, we can, we can try to, to take screen caps from this moment and post them on, on Facebook. <laughs> if, if the copyright laws allow such antics. This, this I, I, I must say, this, this might be the biggest mystery I have faced ever since the, the goddamn Da Vinci Code. I kept wondering this scene myself when watching this. There must be some orbital dynamics here that are beyond my <laughs> physics. Well, you know, when you eject your material from your reproductive organ, it might just be that this will result in an interesting trajectory for for the material and uh, it, it, it might go into surprising places. So not entirely out of the realm of possibility so uh, exactly how much pressure there would have to be in the act of ejection for that to happen can, can you can you draw me a graph about like what, what would be the the angle of of ejection and and then the fly pattern yeah okay and, and so what the... is the needed amount of pressure sure so there there would be a certain amount of pascals involved, but I can't really, I would have to do the math first, but I think the orbital velocity would have to be near 15 kilometers. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, uh, I, uh, I'm trying to draw the graph here, just so that we are thorough on this one. But it's, it's a good thing that we, we got this covered because for, for, for a moment, I was actually worried that it would turn out that there is no logical explanation for this and Ethan Wheel would just be a hack filmmaker. <laughs> all right, would it be White Knight? <laughs> By all means. <laughs> okay, so uh, this kickstarts the melodrama trilogy as mentioned. One night and two days, as it's called in some of the media outlets. The plan here was first to release three films together as one feature, but then they all became a little bit longer, and only one of them is over an hour, so so-called full feature. I believe that goes into that category once you reach around something over an hour. And then we have the two so-called short films. But starting with our longest film of this trilogy, White Knight. Uh, this one was perhaps my my favorite okay. from today's catalog. Yeah, so this is based on an incident that took place in 2011 in real life. And the film was released uh, shortly after in 2012. And uh, the basic idea here was based on a short story of Dostoevsky, the Russian writer, who also has this title, White Knight. But then the... Director <clears throat> saw on the news this this happening in Seoul, this incident of gay beatings, which kind of built this film to where it was supposed to be, because he wasn't really coming up with uh, enough material to. The, he wasn't happy with his script, but this 
this incident gave it the, the kind of the trust that he was looking for. And it kind of make it maybe feels like it. Okay. On the surface level, you have what you have, a love story of interesting circumstances, but then it goes into a completely unexpected territory where it becomes into this chase and uh, a gay guy trying to basically beat up the guys who beat him up three years ago. Quite satisfying, I have to say. Yeah, in, in here we, we kind of get a reversal of of that that silent mysterious I have a package character from La Traviata. Uh, now it's been been gender uh, gender flipped through one go gui. And White Knight wasn't the the, the first uh, like like film from the the short film trilogy that I checked out. I, I checked out uh, suddenly last summer first. So when it came to me starting to to notice that every single film has the characters who who talk in half sentences, and I was starting to to reach the reach the point with that. Uh, White Knight, unfortunately, is that film, but I I do still feel that that when it comes to uh, when it comes to that style. And when it comes to the whole gender-flipped mysterious character with a package from La Traviata, I, I think that La, uh, White Knight actually perhaps does this the best. But both of these thi things, uh, it most definitely has a better mysterious character than, than what was in La Traviata. And the mystery is a hell of a lot darker and better here. But also in, in here, even though I was reaching the saturation point with the uh, uh, the, the style of the dialogue, I do still think that in White Knight it did serve the story in here perhaps the best. In in White Knight it it was more I I think a storytelling mechanic and not just a style. If if you know that makes sense. Uh, it does make sense uh, if you think about how much more more gravita or events or stakes or experiences this this whole getting the revenge for this these hooligans brings to the story where it it deepens the the the, the relationship between the two bit in, inside the span of apparently six hours and by the way the director said that all of these three films are supposed to be something that happens within six hours for the characters. And this is perhaps the film where also the main character has most in in, in his past. Like, uh, for example, in No Regret, uh, in there, our main character's past essentially boils down into that he's an orphan and, and he has had a crush at the orphanage, which he then has had to leave behind, as he has moved, has had to move out, out from the orphanage as he has turned eighteen. Mm. But but in White Knight, what we have, we are we also have that past love, as as our main character here has had a relationship before his self-imposed exile from from South Korea. We have also had the the hate crime. And following from that hate crime, we have had the breakup of, of our main character's previous relationship. And like the film starts 
with, with the moment when when the main character uh, after something like two or three years for for the first time comes again in contact with his past lover and from the, from that that first first mo scene in the film you you already get get the feeling that the what the damage that the hate crime mm. that the beating that the two has have suffered to uh, the years before it's still something that has caused a, like a permanent trauma like the two are no longer able to connect over the beating the the, the the dynamic that the two now share it's very cold uh main characters they they neither one of them really as as the scene tracks onwards they it comes clear that neither one of the two of the two now wants to be in this moment together the the previous previous lover just quickly goes inside the cafeteria and leaves the main character outside yeah and it's it's a kind of very forced moment like we have to share this moment and neither one of us wants to be here so yeah. kind of the damage that has been done to them all those years ago, it still very much premi premiates with them even today. Yeah, I was really taken aboard this film when I saw saw this scene where we have this nonchalant character who couldn't give a less of a fuck or, or is so emotionally damaged that he is able to leave the scene and doesn't really give a fuck either way whether we're going to, going to develop anything here further or not so it's interesting to start to dissect what is going on in this character's headspace and it is quite fantastic and fantastical that the director is able to get all of these different feelings together with, with the steward and the that is online known as pedometer <laughs> And that they go through all of these emotions. And unexplainably, Pedometer keeps following Stuart throughout the night, even when he's basically told to fuck off. But there is something about this Stuart that perhaps it's the, the broken heart or something that has gone wrong with him that he wants to fix during the night. And you kind of once again dropped the magic word for me unexplainably because god damn if i couldn't just figure out what penometer actually sees in in our main character we complete each other beautifully <laughs> I, I i don't know what gets completed here uh like uh the, the the way how how those who haven't seen white knight the way way how how the film has been structured is that you first get introduced our main character the stewardess um who from the onset is extremely cold and detached from basically anything has some kind of a social media app through which hooks up with with pedometer or or the red coat yeah isn't it isn't it orange to me it was red to me it was orange anyway it's a beautiful coat. <laughs> it, it, it is something. It is something that was put there very deliberately. Yeah, so the director had just recently, before making the film, apparently seen Rebel Without a Cause. And Rebel Without a Cause, the lead actor, has a certain kind of a characteristic jacket. 
and this has something to do with it. And he noticed that there are some certain bisexual elements shown in Nicholas Ray's films. So he really liked the color and the tone of the film, and then he started looking like crazy for orange jackets for the film. He went through several of them, but he could never find exactly the one that he would 100% like, but apparently this was good enough to make the compromise and put it on screen. So this was to give the, the, the film and the character some, something special and to bring more color and kind of bring him out, make him stand out in the film. And visual-wise, that, that does work, I must admit that much. It works, and they were on a limited budget, of course, and they had a limited budget for the lighting. Then there's, of course, the other element, the chewing gum. Yeah, in Bernardo Bertolucci's Last Tango in Paris was something that the director saw, and there's a moment where a character takes the gum out of his mouth and puts it on the wall of the toilet. So he saw that and was like, yeah, I gotta do that in my film. There are these habitual things that the characters do in his films. Also in Going South, which we will look into, there's a character who eats medicine for headaches habitually, indicating depression, which I did miss myself. Yeah, I only noticed it in at the end of the film when the pillbox is, is falls to the ground is, is and breaks open. And and the pills fly all over. That that's the only moment in in that film when I actually noticed that. Oh, hey, w w what is that? And where did that come from? Yeah, still coming back to White Knight. Uh, it kind of establishes that the character is so emotionally not quite there, not able to give his one hundred percent to sex in a hotel or in a toilet, for that matter that they almost separate at that moment, but then the pedometer keeps following this guy wherever he goes. And and the steward is w willing to even pay money for the guy so that he would stick with him at least until 6 a.m. The money transfer, I believe, never takes place. But after all these, these fights and the, the, the several different kinds of feelings that they go through, then there is the dialogue about what would you do if the world would actually end now? They're like, I don't know, you, me? And then they try a second round of sex, in, in, still in a toilet. But now it's emotional sex. Falling in love while hardships endured. Which I, I did find somewhat strange, because once again, also in White Knight, the... The, the entire relationship, from what I gathered, seemed to be building solely on both of them being rude to each other, and then Pedometer following our main character to places, even even places where he most definitely shouldn't follow him. Like at the end of the film, when when the beating and and the revenge subplot is being established. At that moment, Pedometer most definitely should just, you know, disappear quickly. I mean, now our main character is, is chasing people with, with iron pipe. Like, like that's, that's criminal offense. You may be, uh, 
be, may become connected to an ongoing inquiry if, if somebody just, you know, phones the cops about this. Yeah, it was kind of half of this and half of that. Maybe he wanted to show off to this guy that he's not willing to back off, that he's not going to be like all the all the other pussies that abandoned him before. Maybe it's because he's also really emotionally attached and fed up with this kind of behavior, so he wants a piece of the pie in the fight. Who knows? But what doesn't come really naturally for me is indeed when he... The, 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 pedometer says that well it was only one night but it was real or something like this yeah 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 uh with white knight i actually connected and more easily followed through with the with the revenge plot line than with the, the affection and relationship plot line that it tries to build like once once again st sticking with with what the director was was going on or or the theme of all these shorts that the fact that they happened in one night or or in in a time slot of six hours you start the, the affection with someone who is just rude and demanding and and then you you build up build it up by by on on now on your part as a as an act of revenge being rude and demanding towards him and and then there is all, all, all the violence and beating up and we are still dealing with six hour times a lot and this is somehow supposed to bloom into some type of love <laughs> i i just just kind of couldn't get on with it then gives name card and pedometer is like fuck off wong yu kong and that's the moment when he goes into the taxi and one of those films which is left open-ended does does the steward go to the phone booth and exit the taxi does pedometer drive once again back with the motorcycle and chase him i think it's left in a kind of a loop they just keep following each other i i took it that that no they they don't at the end maybe yeah maybe you're right because still I think one article really nailed what this could be about. Quote, man who has to leave and the man who has to let go. Yeah, that actually is is pretty good summary how I, I saw the film too. Mm. But yeah, this was released <clears throat> around the time when the director realized that the audience numbers were more reduced than before comparing to No Regret. And so there started to be this oversaturation of in the market of gay films to the point that there was nothing special anymore about that you release a gay film. Would it be suddenly last summer? Um, why not? Suddenly last summer, perhaps, but to just stick with, with the whole notion that all these films share the the slave master dynamic as already mentioned uh this is now the one that that deals with with teacher student so in in here that that dynamic is the most uh, is at its most obvious which well kudos to the director he uses this moment and this extremely obvious dynamic uh, to to subvert it and twist it around yeah this was a film that <clears throat> was made in an interim the director was working on other films that were supposed to take 
place during the summer. I suppose we're talking about going south and the like. And this is something that was uh, this was an opportunity to make this film. When he got some funding from a cultural cultural organization to make suddenly last summer, which which he felt like was a kind of a part time job in the beginning, as it was short term work, and it was finished in one month. So here we have uh, one of the taboos. There's quite a lot of different themes in these films that keep repeating taboo of the age difference this time. There's a student called Sangwoo who knows the teacher's so-called secret. Well, it is a secret. He has visited a gay bar and he has picture evidence to show for it. And so Sangwoo uses this evidence as extortion method to keep the teacher Kyun Hoon around him for the entire day or the six hours. And it is perhaps a bit of a risky subject. But back in the day when we visited for example, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, this student teacher affectionate aspect was something that was perhaps the biggest yikes moment in that film too. What is kind of funny though is that uh, at the time of the shooting, the actor who was playing playing the schoolboy was not 18 but 28. Uh, teacher was 36 or 37. But anyway, yeah, I think it, it I think it still works. Somebody noted that uh, he is too old to to play the schoolboy part, but I don't know. South Koreans tend to look quite young until their late ages. I don't know how viable it is for South Koreans themselves. But what is the overarching arching message of the film? I certainly am not quite sure. I I guess that blackmail gets you anything. Maybe it's open-ended, like White Knight. So at the end, you have the sundown. The sundown is supposed to mark you the moment when the kid is supposed to leave the teacher's flat. But when the credits roll, he hasn't left the flat. They are still in the hug mode. So is this relationship now official or is this the moment to say goodbye? Yeah, who who knows? I I took it in in a way that it it would now somehow become official. Like to me, the main crux of of the film is that the, the student knows that the teacher is gay, and that the teacher kind of tries to still deny that side of him from the student, and especially you know hide the fact that he would have feelings towards his student and the the culmination of the ending would then be the teacher finally openly admitting his feelings and also his gayness yeah there's a pre-existing unconfidence between unconfidence between the two uh, this is something that the teacher has noted already before that the, this student of, of his is a bit of a problem for him but he has apparently shown some signs of affection via gifts and smiles and looks towards the kid so which 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 lands us our lands us in 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 the first relationship advice that at least gets gets you know circulated in in stray circles which is that the pair does not shit where it eats the teacher i felt that is also not quite able to 
to, to avoid this enough because teacher is unable to get him off his own car for Christ's sake. Like he keeps following him in his car for hours and hours and hours while the teacher is visiting the different uh, the, the students, parents. And so something tells me that the teacher is quite enjoying the company. Yeah, I, I did kind of find that a bit weird too. Um, this is something that happens before the blackmail is properly established. Yeah. So at this point, the teacher doesn't yet know that 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 his student has the leverage on the situation, and could just you know under fake confidence just you know throw the student out of out of the car, but never does that. Even though even though to me it looked like that the teacher is extremely annoyed by by his student and the fact that the student keeps following him into places. Did you find any significance with the crossing under the bridge? Is it the Kathniel thing that you're, as, a, as an audience, kind of waiting for the kissy kissy at this moment? Thankfully not. Well, well, once again, a repeating pattern that I found from the, from, from the movies is that he very easily leans on a character who comes from the countryside and always moves to Seoul. This is basically, uh, no regret makes a repeated point about this. How, how every single orphan from the countryside always comes to Seoul and never goes anywhere else nor stays in the countryside. And suddenly last summer also, uh, once again, makes a really knowing reference of this. As, as, as now it's the student who remarks that the teacher is a country pumpkin and all the country pumpkins come to Seoul. So, so the bridge kind of... I, I, I saw this type of symbolism there. The, the countryside and Seoul and the bridge is something that connects the two. To, um, the second one that, that I was expecting to show up in that moment would be that the bridge would be more of a crossing point for the teacher, for him to to start to acknowledge for himself and also to his students the feelings that he harbors. Mm, or crossing a certain line. Crossing a certain line, yeah. And it, it kind of happens, happens following that. It's like, it, it, it's quite subtle, but you after that moment, you, for example, notice that there, there's, that there's a short moment when when the teacher has brought the students' headphones and now is you know listening music music with them and is is looking at the at the river and at least for a moment he looks to be more relaxed in in that moment and then he turns up again but but certain type of of kind of a emotional crossing I I that that's something I I did read the preaching. There are certain childlike mannerisms or this kind of kid-like behaviors, jumping over bushes or being kind of very animate perhaps with some body language that made me believe maybe the character age-wise here and to believe that that this is, this is a bad idea. Again, I, I'm not sure what the film wants to tell me, like that, that, that this is not a big deal uh, or is this supposed to tell that well essentially nothing just to play with the tension throughout the movie and make a movie out of that 
Yeah, I, I didn't know either, because uh, would it be trying to tell me that, that it's not a big deal? Well, in that case, I would have to strongly disagree with the film. Yeah. Like, no, no matter how, how heartfelt and, you know, once again, the birthplace of the romance of all, of, the, of, that, of a lifetime. But we, we are talking about blackmail here. Like that, that's, once again, that, that's one bridge that you are not supposed to cross. Yeah, we're, we're talking about blackmail. We're talking about a teacher who probably had some kind of a inappropriate feelings towards this pupil. And then this pupil is pushing on it and kind of exploring for what the limits would be and if he would be able to overturn this guy to his side. Alex Davidson from BFI actually said of the director's works in general that connections can be made with the work of one Karwai in the swooning visuals and in Apichapong Vera Setakul, who did the Uncle Boon Me, where you have the showing not telling depiction of human relationship, but his style is his own. What do you think about that? I can see the that the, the, there are certain visuals there is some great cinematography. There is also the, the, the locations just kind of give you the opportunity to to, to play with the, the beauty of the cinematography. But there, there are those long takes. There are those far... Uh, there are those really wide takes. For example, in Going South, there is this... He captures the, the kind of the peacefulness of the nature where the leaves are just f f getting pushed in the wind, eerily silent or relaxing location, whereas whereas you're still pushed against time because they are supposed to make it to that army base. So this interesting conflict. Yeah, I, on my end, I wouldn't necessarily stretch it that far. Oh, I, I, don't, I don't agree with, with that assessment. Well, the... especially when it comes to Von Karvai, I like if I would have to try to find, I, I guess White Knight would perhaps be be closest to to Von Karvai's work, but but no, no, I I think that Y is thematically kind of more whole and aesthetically more richer and hell hell uh why even doesn't really try to play so much with with any kind of mystery necessarily in his films it's it's i i kind of get more into the mood of of wonger vice work i can so yeah yeah i i don't see see that parallel i can see what he means with up japan where is it where at least in Uncle Boomy, you have a lot of these scenes that just kind of unfold the 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 story as it goes, as this director as was as well does. But um, this is these are a bit peculiar choices for comparison. If 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 I would be a mean person, and I am. Uh, my first suspicion would be that this is once again one of those critic moments where, where you drop 
well, for example, invest semi-unknown films and directors just so that you can flex your film buff or film critic muscle. <laughs> but he's from BFI. He must know what he's talking about. Well, does does he know the sperm physics? Oh yeah. Well, does 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 BFI have the statics of of sperm physics? If you are if you are a member of BFI, and and you come across this episode, please. And if if you are into the know of of how how physics in sperm work, please contact us on our Facebook page. You get all the sperm particle physics right here in this podcast. <laughs> Once again, at the end, we have the crotch crab. And up. That is the moment to behold. <laughs> what am I talking about? It's a, it, it's an, it's an Im- important closing off point of, of of a film. Who would it be next then? <laughs> God, God help us! I, I I think we can't salvage this one anymore. So <laughs> let's quickly just move on to the next one. Nobody knows anyone. Nothing to see here. <laughs> Well, looks like we're gonna get into our into our third film of the trilogy. Going south, things are about to go south pretty quickly here. Now that's a pretty accurate estimation of exactly what happens. Yeah. Uh, something perplexed me about what the director said about this film that uh, he made uh, going south as a declaration prior to the production of another film. And that um, White Knight and Suddenly Last Summer are about gays, while Going South stars heterosexuals, but makes issues out of heterosexual love, end quote. I kind of can see where that argument perhaps is coming from. Do I agree with that assessment? Uh not necessarily no, and that's actually something that's really hard to go against, seeing how that's what the director has said, so one would think that he would know the best. There's nothing new about like two guys having sex, even the, if they're heterosexuals, but what is really perplexing to say that these guys are heterosexuals in this film it doesn't quite make sense because he's so, so emotionally involved with this guy. I'm guessing that where this is coming from is from the fact that they both have served in the army and that's where they met. So what the director is would be meaning here would be that he's putting more weight on the the old stereotype that that military turns men into 12 year old uh, straight men into 12 year old homos. Yeah. Still kind of exploring each other's bodies and all that, right? Well, I really don't know about exploring and bodies. Like, I have no idea. I, I don't know what is supposed to happen in the military. Nobody talks about it, so I don't know about it. I was there. Nothing like this happened. <laughs> but... Well, the, the movie makes m- makes a point that... Yeah, yeah. Apparently, man, uh, male on male, sexual relations are extremely common, at least in South Korean military. And what is used to explain that, both in the film 
and why is being brought up in real world outside of the movie even though in, in the articles that i read no mention of of homosexual encounters is ever brought up would be the long service times that exist in in south korea south korea is a country where every man unless you are being given you know freedom from service for on, on some pretense usually that being that you are not either physically or, or emotionally fit to serve ea that the same thing that happens in finland also uh then then you have a mandatory military service which in in south korea these days if i understood correctly ranges from 18 months to something like 22 months yeah so it's it's a it's a year and a half almost two years in some cases and the the film kind of points this out in the light that this means that the dudes in the army are so extremely lonely that they, in in order to help that loneliness, the military kind of drives them to be or act in a homosexual fashion. In this way, it kind of parallels also something that happens in, in American prison system, where also people who might be straight outside of prison start act in a homosexual way way while inside and i guess this is what the what the director is aiming at what is true is that uh, there's still a lot to go in the korean military when it comes to understanding homosexuality apparently there was an article written by the representative of Korean Military Human Rights Center after a homophobic investigative officer hunted down gay soldiers. So it w- would go like this, that they would go one by one, their apparent subjects of investigation to find out whether somebody was homosexual and then find out very detailed information about who was their first anal sex partner, things like that and then trying to apparently connect some dots uh, to make these people investigated uh, under the sexual molestation provision article 925 of the military criminal act mca so-called sodomy law so yeah i wouldn't be surprised if our lead character is not exactly excited to go into the army in the first place if they, there are such plain human rights violations going on in a, such a a sophisticated country. Yeah, Yeah, Jesus Christ. Uh, There was one victim who expressed his feelings after investigator uh, had ended the investigation and said that I feel frustrated as, as if my whole military life in which I did my best went all wrong. And then the investigator replied something like, you should not say so. You have to say that you are sorry to cause damage to the military. Yeah. Oh my God. Like I, I, I do know that that military and its attitude towards homosexuality has been a tad bit problematic ever since that the, the fucking ancient Greeks. A Finnish army may not be the most homosexual positive environment but but at least in finland the army tries to do something with 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 the problem 
and somehow tries to ease the service time for also those who identify as gay and on top of also you know allowing you allowing you to skip skip the service on grounds of homosexuality if you feel that that doing the service as a gay person would be emotionally and physic uh, psychologically too demanding for you so so at least we try to do something that is not that and the film doesn't shy away from showing some of these well problems it is uh, depicted as a problem not as something that would be functionally incorrect i'm talking about the earring they talk about the earring in the beginning of the film that you should take off the earring now well he does wear the earring when he is in the military uniform but of course when he's going go into the military you can't wear the earring for sure anymore that that is also something that might be seen as a safety hazard if you wear any metallic objects on your body you do military stuff in military it's not really suitable as is not the long hair but the, here it's uh, indicated that yeah it's well, i think it's taken off because it's not the manly thing to do in the army yeah there, there's a lot that 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 happens and and goes to army that is based uh solely on the aesthetics you you have to look manly and and the the army itself that the unit has to look united in 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 Finland, the, for example, this is the the sole reason why so heavy emphasis is put on that everybody dresses the same way, everybody's hair is the same way. It's just so that the the main point there is to to play a psychological game with with you, where it's emphasized how you are not an individual, but you are a part of a greater whole, and you are just a gog in a in a machine. Uh, when it comes to actually acting like a soldier or acting the way how military demands of you, going south, our, our main main military man actually goes against the regulation. I, I would say all the time, like that there are there are breaking of regulation in in a in a in a quantities that they would land you most likely in problem into trouble even in Finnish army oh sure like they're, they're, they're small things so like having acts of affection while wearing on uniform at least in Finland you are not allowed to do that I don't know what it's worth but you can mention that in in South Korea and if you go to the street it's not really very common I believe to to kiss your partner whether it would be a male female or female-female-male relationship. You just don't kiss anybody because it's uh, out of courtesy to others. But anyway, yeah, he tries to, to sabotage uh, or delay the trip to the army as much as possible, giving the clear indication that he has no intention of going there anymore. And so he stays inside the gas station drinking the coffee and then slips the tranquilizer in the coffee and turns the car around, starts driving in the opposite direction. Yeah, he essentially drugs and knocks out his his former, well, uh, partner, friend, partner, thing. quotation marks from the military. And absolutely gorgeous green shots here. 
I think it's the most aesthetically pleasing film out of the bunch. I don't know. I I, I still go with White White Knight. Mm. Even though this this isn't bad. This is most definitely an an upgrade when it comes to, for example, La Traviata or No Regrets. Yep. And I I like how the film also reveals its story piece by piece. It's like zero, zero exposition. It's simply everything starts to make sense gradually by small reveals in a pretty natural way. And the text messages as the title cards of the film. I didn't I didn't even realize that they were text messages when they were first shown on the screen. But when it, was it then the third text message that I realized that okay, this is kind of telling their story via these messages. Yeah, I also didn't piece together that they were supposed to be text messages at first. My my first inclination was that they were kind of the inner thoughts of the director, and I was for the long time I was I was wondering that is this a personal moment of the director that he now is telling to, uh, telling through fictional characters? Like, is is he kind of telling something that happened to him? And I too pieced together that they are supposed to be text messages, like you, somewhere around the the third message that pops up. Overall, with 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 the text messages, I I felt that this may be the most experimental film that the director has. Hmm. And I could see that the the that I think the the lead characters are playing really well. I think it's a complete rookie, this this uh, guy who is supposed to go to the military plane, the character of Kite, Kim Jae-hung. Uh, he's been doing one or two other gay roles since latest known film is one of them. It's called Secret Room Wait from 2020. And then we have Sin Wan-chon, who has played in Fly By Night, which Lee Sung-hui was first pledged as the director, but then he didn't take on the job anyway, something like this. And then there's a period film Feng Shui that somebody might know from 2018. But really super unknown actors for me. Yeah, there's something there's something attractive about the, the Korean expression of fear or confusion. I don't know if you're if you ever thought about this like this uh, like a guy in a military outfit, he's otherwise quite determined looking like a military personnel should be looks almost like an anime character sometimes when under states of surprise or confusion or shock. Uh, like here, this perhaps could be reflecting the c- culture of harmony, avoiding conflict of at all costs. And when the conflict does occur, then, then once that bottled up emotion comes out and the consequences come out, it's more of a special event to them than for perhaps you and me, Henrik. That would explain the anime type of movements. That's the best way I can describe them. All the expressions, uh, the almost theatrical body, body language that you get as a response to his friend vomiting out the coffee, for example. So I don't know if that's played for the humorous part that the director likes to put in these films. But it's like, yeah, military with like dead eye to look and then oh my god oh my god and as i mentioned there's this relaxed atmosphere of the film in its milieu like even when they're amongst 
uh, in the middle of the time pressure of them going back to the base. There's two two moods that collide in a beautiful stark contradiction. Of course, the other party likes to downplay this affection at any time. Quote, if you romp in a whorehouse, is that love? End quote, which hurts Kite, or kind of puts him off for a second. He pushes back, pushes back, pushes back, but then they have their moments like, quote, don't treat me like I'm invisible, or, quote, you had a hard hard on you, chicken shit, and things like that. That just kind of the film at the end shows you and kind of destroys the, the perhaps the self image or how the other person who is not going to the to the army he is he has been already i believe serving his service it's kind of showing how fake and and what kind of a lie he is living in by being with this apparent girlfriend of his i don't know then again it's an interesting fact that they are both living a lie because this one guy is holding on to something that he he cannot have even though he tries and in the process he shows to him that he is living in a <laughs> Yeah, they are, they are both kind of doing a disservice to, to themselves. I don't know about the, the no longer in the army guy's perspective, how, how much disservice or how much he lies to himself. I kind of took, took the ending that he, he actually stays true to himself. He isn't willing to, to let go of his girlfriend for his military time fling, even though he might have a gay side on him or in him. Yeah, okay, you can take it like that. For sure, Gite was truthful f- to himself, like pushing the limits of this guy and trying to win him over. Yeah, and, and at the very end, it, it seems like that Gite is, is able to to, to reach uh, some kind of an inner level in in him like uh, like to to the listeners who may not have have yet checked out going south the main issue here is that there are there are two guys who have be have had a homosexual fling while they have both served in the army now one of them has left the army and has got the all connections to, to his past army buddy and apparently in 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 reserve has gotten a girlfriend and 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 our, our soldier Kaya guy tries to have a last minute kind of a re- reach to his his back in the barracks lover and 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 the film revolves a lot around the dynamic where where the dude in the reserve now denies any kind of a gay a gay side in in him, and our soldier boy tries to kind of bring that side and and force the reserve guy to to kind of admit that there was something more in what they had back in back in the, when they were both serving. Than what 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 the guy is willing to admit, and at the end of a film, after all the antics, I I I took it that the the military man was 
Kitei was somehow able to reach, re- reach the uh, reserve guy and, and find some type of, of a hint of, of a homosexual tendencies from, uh, in, inside of him. But that still wasn't strong enough for, for the reserve guy to, to really follow those, those feelings through and, and, you know, let go of his girlfriend. Whatever is his thought process, clearly this coming to the surface that he has homosexual tendencies is really bad in his world where he is ready to almost throw a rock at the guy's head to end it all. But then Kite says that, yeah, says something about that, well, you have had the hard on your chicken shit. Mm-hmm. And then he realizes that, yeah, that's actually how things stand. Yeah, it. I, I, to me, it read like like the dude most likely is bi, and he hasn't acknowledged his his bisexualness before, mm. leading to confusion. Le- leading to confusion, and he kind of understands that. He he understands that he's bisexual at the end end of the film, but since he now can choose between Kitei man and he's never seen in the film girlfriend female he then in in that crossroads section he chooses female and goes back to his girlfriend mm, looks like it and also kind of gives up and uh, yeah and realizes that he is a bisexual or gay one article put it pretty well that quote his repulsion is not that far from his desire end quote which is something that you could see in Suddenly Last Summer, perhaps, or Night Flight, or No Regret. Uh, kinda. Uh, like GagaUlala.com flags all, all these films. It it provides you you some some categorical flags, like and thematical flags. How, how you can find more films like the one that you just saw. And one of the flags that keep kept repo- repeating on, on these films would be lost. And I, I kind of took it that that's, that, that actually is, is one of the driving, kind of repeating emotional motives that, that happen in these movies. The characters are I- extremely lustful. True, yes. And with that lust, there there is also another repeating emotion. It is is some form of repulsion. There, these are like all these films, or most of them, not all. I, I would count Night Flight out here. Well, uh, no, no, no. White Knight, White Knight, White Knight. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, out from this equation, but the rest of them deal with characters who have. I feel uh, lost towards towards another male figure, and at the same time has have to face some type of repulsion, either from from outside of themselves, uh, like in in form of a system or some other characters who are representatives of the system, or then a repulsion that that stems from inside of them. Like they, they feel repulsion towards the lust that they, they themselves are feeling. The lust that could be punishable under the South Korean military 
criminal act. Gite is taking a huge risk and gamble here by not showing up on time at the barracks. Uh, that it is, but that's an also in Finland one of the perhaps biggest, strongest rule breaks that you can make and that still gets made basically, you know, in in every patch that that goes goes into service. There's always someone who who fails to show up in time. Mm, there there are some repeated themes. Once again in his films, uh, here it's the meow, ciao, ciao, where he's imitating the kind of sounds that this person who has already uh, finished his military service did during their sex. So he has those memories, kind of teases him with those, those sounds. And something similar is done in Night Flight for a comedical effect. Where we go back to this, didn't you know that hitting somebody will make them lose IQ points? Oh yeah, I I actually didn't connect the two myself. Hmm. Yeah, but there's something about this film, whether it would be the the beautiful green locales, tranquility of the settings, or the excellent emotional acting that I found, and uh, they that the character is willing to go for such of an extra mile for his lust to to win him over to his side or what, whatever he is doing at this point, just kind of following his feelings and refusing to accept what is the reality. And then the other guy is just kind of realizing more about himself as this whole thing unfolds. And when we get to the tunnel, there's this fantastic... Like a rave, this little dance that he puts on when the other guy leaves. Puts on back to tune that had been playing in the radio before or on his tape. Yeah, they are all, all very good points that, that, that you mentioned. But un, unfortunately, I have to confess that most most of those aspects in, in the film went completely, completely past me because... I was just way too distracted by the rampant breaking of military regulation that happens here. <laughs> like I, I, I kept counting on exactly how many beers beers our our military man Gita drinks in in course of the film, and how intoxicated he becomes. Uh, for you know, as as the film progresses, and I all I was able to think was that. No, no, it's it's supposed to be two patriotic beers and one from Mannerheim. Just so that, you know, you avoid this type of drunken buffonery, which was my running point at the at the closing rave scene at the tunnel. Okay, so, so that's what you get out of this military code broken. <laughs> to, to me, to me, what what the most I got out of it was all, 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 all the breaking of a military code. And I I know, I know, I know. That that that's me failing the film, but God damn it, I just couldn't help it. Yeah, I took it as uh, one nice little way to kind of put the put the screws tighter in the audience. That there's this pressure in the background, but they they've got to solve this incident between them. And yeah, I I don't know. I just uh, this must be my favorite film from out of these films. Because there's always also something going on here. It's 
I think it's a really quick film. Of course, it's 45 minutes, but it's always going south. And fast. <laughs> there's, there's no career for, for, for Gite in, in military following this one. Uh, something about the, the last dance here. It's like he puts the song on and then he gives the military salute to his buddy who is leaving and has left his car to this Gite crazy person. It's it does kind of a salute to me rang as the confirmation from Gite's part that I understand that I am I will not be able to turn your head in this matter. You go down your road and I will just have to accept this and keep on raving in the tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, I'm 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 really 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 sorry about this. But I, I too saw that scene, and, and do you know what, what was the, the running thought in, in my mind as, as he gives that salute? Yeah. It, it, it was going back to, you know, the, the, the Finnish, Finnish service regulations. Are you supposed to give the military salute to the civilian person or, or are you not? And then noticing that he actually fucks up the salute because you are not, at least in Finland, you are, when you are giving the salute, you are not supposed to kind of a limp wristedly kung fu hit yourself in the forehead, as Kite does. And, uh, and, you know... Depends on the country, I guess. I mean, America yeah, is really sloppy. Might be, might be. If you compare the American salute to what I've seen from films, at least, it's really, it's nothing like we have, of course, this very serma look when we do that. But there is like... Uh, but but yeah yeah unfortunately going south was 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 not any kind of a highlight of of my podcast film analyzing career. Okay, well, interesting. Somehow resonated with me. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorites for this year. It's it's a, it's I'm I'm really happy for you. I'm really happy for you, and I I, I do apologize, but both from you and and the director and and all your friends. But I I just <laughs> I I just but constantly was pay, paying attention to perhaps the wrong things. Uh, sounds like it definitely. <laughs> Would it be night flight? Well, well, I, I, I guess my analysis of going south went south so fast and so far that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let let's just you know, quickly evacuate into the next film. <laughs> Night flight from twenty fourteen. Yeah, this is the longest movie that we're gonna watch, that that we did watch. The director had the scenario for the film done for a long time, and he had an idea of a. TV show with eight episodes, but things happened and he was struck by the teenagers committing suicide in South Korea as gay persons. And he wanted to explore why that is, why people do suicide and wanted to incorporate it into his film. And he adjusted the scenarios to deal specifically with school violence. In my opinion, Night Flight is the, the least LGBT-ish movie, if you will, in that it explores a variety of themes of societal issues. I don't know. I, I on the other hand, well, hard, hard to say from all 
LGBT or or gay films. I mean, out of these, uh, out out of these, I'm not in entirely really certain. I agree. I actually would say that Night Flight could be in the in the category of of more LGBT films. Most definitely, in my opinion, when when contrasted against La Traviata, Night Flight has has more, at least in my opinion, more LGBT themes and elements in it. And altogether, all, all I I would say that thematically, this is kind of a, a stronger LGBT movie than than some of some others. Precisely because I kind of found a lot of LGBT themes from from the movie like for example the uh, extremely heavy uh, societal abuse that that is kind of on, on full swing here since you mentioned that that you felt that it it was it, it's in the least category uh, because because of all the other themes to me for example in in the school and how it works as an institution there there is a strong LGBT element and theme in it when it comes to how perhaps easily and how viciously the schools attack the gay pupils and then there is also you know other themes that that relate to the the LGBT element but are not directly about that which is the the school's pacifism towards towards bullying that happens amongst the students which also is shown to be extremely horrible and oftentimes actually quite shockingly violent that and then there is just a general school violence and how the pupils might treat other pupils regardless if you're showing off homo or showing homosexual tendencies or not and then there is the yeah a good fierce competi fierce competition against the uh, between the pupils themselves for points and if you don't score enough points you're the pizza man yeah yeah the the, the pizza man or or how the how the film works out uh, uh, the three uh, three types of people those who order the chicken those who fry the chicken and those who who deliver the chicken right uh, which is how the school sees social classes in in South Korea and and their students' abilities to to find their place in those classes. Like the the whole schooling revolves around around points and the students uh, graduating from the school with high enough grades and to the teachers that's the only thing that matters and and that that deems what social class the students are going to find themselves later on. Are they the ones who order chicken or those who deliver the, the chicken? And perhaps, you know, when, when it comes to the the, the pressure uh, pressure the students feel and also the, the vicious bullying that targets other people and not just the, the homosexuals, I, I guess best example of that would be the the manhwa fan that gets for the longest time the the worst end of of the bullying stick here. And I found kind of heinous these all these discussions with the teacher privately that so teacher goes and asks the the 
pupil that or student that yes so are you also one of those gay persons then goes like well never mind that's not important and neither is important your friends your sexuality your experiences the bullying everything that is secondary to your grades just get your fucking ass to the Seoul University that's all that matters that's basically the gist uh yeah yeah from that teachers and uh, certainly yes yeah that's that teacher also represents all the other teachers in this film and not exactly there is another teacher character in the film and this is the jackass who who makes the degrading remarks about the chance or the possibility that there might be a homosexual student in his class. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. So so you you have have two teachers. One who who is is an abusive, like physically abusive and hitting bully, and also a raging homophobe. Uh, the the one who who asks from his class, what are human rights to students? And then you have the, the, the kind of good guy teacher that the film presents to you, uh, which is the one who reacts in no way in, into the, the fact that his, his students are being bullied. Uh, asks the whole, are you homosexual also? But, but not in the way that he would actually end up holding that against our main character. But it, instead, you know, just constantly takes take the, the side that, you know, don't care about anything. I'm not gonna, you know, take part in, in anything. I'm, I'm not gonna do anything about the bullying. I'm not gonna do anything about, you know, how you feel about school. Just, you know, just study and get to the university. Right. And this is kind of supposed to be the better end of the two, two teachers. Of course, not sure how representative this is of South Korean schooling system and the teacher's behavior. But oh boy, if this is the truth, that you, as, a, as a, like a, the elder, you do not take any responsibility for the well-being of your, of your students as you do in Finland, or you're supposed to, at least. Yeah, yeah, like... It's it's extremely kind of kind of a, a judging or judgmental view that the film takes up towards the the South Korean schooling, and you know if 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 this is in any way an accurate uh, description of of what the school life in South Korea is, well, God help them all. Yeah, so the film revolves around two characters that have been school friends for uh, for some time in the past but then something happens when they get further in their school journey and the other character gets distanced and seems to be even less emotional or able to show emotions than before this flash in these flashbacks he is already like super wooden but apart from this other one smile perhaps but then he is so emotionally detached that perhaps it's also part of the character's drive to kind of figure out what happened to him. And apparently what happened to him is that his father had left the family. 
and he had no prior knowledge that he had also burned down a factory, but that also plays plays a role. And that's that's yeah, probably uh, why he left the family. Who knows? But uh, he, that, he, yeah, yeah. That that's how I took it. That yeah. that he can't. The father can't come home anymore because in the past he has burned down the factory, and I I got the sense that you know he he could. Well, would the cops ever meet him? You know that that he would then be arrested for for the the, the burning. Yeah, and so. Whatever you find shocking or different or unusual in your parents or your fellow pupils, yeah, you choose that guy as a target for bullying. Uh, kind of, yeah. There, there is, once again, uh, the, the class system, which uh, perhaps is an, at its most violent in, in Night Flight. The perhaps biggest represent, uh, representative of, of a South Korean class in, in here would be the, the student president. The kind of main does well at school kid who is, is not the leader of the bullying group, but is, is kind of like this, this uh, overly eager right hand. Or, or, or the second-hand man, who at the beginning of the film ma- makes these these remarks towards, uh, to, to our main character about the Manfa fan, that the main character should not hang around with him because the Manfa fan is, is not on their level. And at the same time, kind of brings uh, out this, this Lord of the Flies their uh, uh, social game aspect when he states that that by hanging around with the Manfa fan, our main character is showing weakness and that weakness might be something that would end up make, end up making him a target for bullying. But what does the director think the message of the film is? Let's check that out. Quote, it is a film of loneliness. School is a microcosm of society and the reason why school violence takes place and such monstrous characters exist is because of loneliness. Where there is a lack of understanding, it is no surprise that perspective becomes skewed and violence pervades. Most of all, I hope the audience may take night flight as a healing experience." End quote. Healing experience. I really don't know about healing experience. Well, well, uh, I can see that in a sense that he brings these subjects to light, and in second sense that the other kid destroys the school building and the, the pupils and the teachers themselves by the end, which I have to say once again was quite satisfying, being the horrible beast that I am. But that he gets his kind of revenge on these people. Even then, you might ask, is he doing it because of the, of the of the SD card of the camera, or is he doing it for his friend? Gonna half and half, or, or what? But he seems to be really pissed off that such material has been leaking. But in fact, the person who has been, who has been maltreated on, on the video material there, is, his friend. So he's kind of protecting him there. 
On the other hand, on that SD card is also pictures of them together doing fun trips like going on a bicycle tour, which might be in and of itself too much for him to handle. They can, with, with that quotation from director, when it comes to the director wanting to depict the loneliness, I myself, I would have appreciated perhaps more glimpses into the domestic home environment of these kids. In in the finished film, uh, you you only have like three sets of mothers that, that show up. Two that you follow, which are, well, uh, under the circumstances, more or less single parent mothers. This is this is our main character. And the leader of, of the school bullies, Kivung. Both of them are, are shown when, when they are at home. But I, I would have kind of uh, wanted to... Uh, and then you are quickly shown, like, like in, a, in a five second glimpse. The, the, what I took was the mother of of Kibung's uh, second-hand man, the, the, the school president, the, the student president at the school. But especially, I would have loved, loved to see the, the home life of the student president. Especially if, if the director wants to tackle, tackle loneliness. Like, what and how lonely is the student president's home because you you get to see that the school life itself is is extremely lonely as as the teachers uh, repeatedly refuse to take any responsibility or and and be the leaders and be emotionally there present for their students but is this loneliness something that also follows all these students back to their homes or is it just our main character and Kibun? And even even the main character, there's home life really isn't that that lonely because his mom is someone who actively is present and takes contact with he with, with her kid. That could have been an area that could have been explored different lives of this or, or the expanding on these character interactions at home or the or the president as you said. Because I feel that at times the, the film lingers on a bit. And you could have filled these moments instead and put something like that that you mentioned instead here. It it now now that you said it, it, it does linger. Um I won't say that it's over long or, or or that the lingering effect is a problem, but it does have that effect. The director said that one actor left the production because the actor's mother was was threatening to kill herself with a cross in one hand and a bottle of herbicide in the other hand. As soon as she heard that she would be participating in this film, so he had to sign off from the film. So this is only one of the many reasons I understand that the director Isonghuil has had as a trouble in casting people in his movies because there is that the societal pressure and then perhaps finding the actors to the actors who would appear as kind of giving natural performances 
getting the right faces and okay well that's kind of, must admit got an extreme reaction yep interesting manga anime effect here that people are puking all kind of in a random moment and not so random always but wow this the level of physical effect when you notice that some people know about some gay person being at school we also serves to to kind of tackle tackle the characters because that the puking is something that eventually leads into our main character's outing as a gay person but the when eventually when Giwung finds his dad and gives some constructive feedback on setting places on fire the character of Giwung gets a bit of a emotional release Perhaps from this point forwards, we would see him actually smiling or having more of those, you know, fun emotions on screen. Because he's so absolutely the bad guy in this film. Unable to be, well, human. Yeah, he Kivum starts the film as an absolute asshole. To a point where I kind of find it hard to 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 see what it exactly is that our main character finds in him yeah and we only find out later on or as the thing film lingers on with the flashbacks yeah and actually those, those flashbacks also didn't help me either no because it's it, kind of like the it's kind of like young chu is pushing himself in the vicinity once again of Giwung, where Giwung doesn't feel completely excited about that. Yeah, and, and the, the, the film kind of ends up once once again do, doing this this thing that that Asian movies kind of love to pull, where where they take something really not that special, but the characters then end up treating that that thing or object in a, in a really peculiarly special way. Um, in in Night Flight's case, that would be Givung's sneaker or, or shoe that that young young Chu has has kept for for something like over a, a decade, and and treasured it as as a, I, I don't know like like there, there's a flashback when when Givung has been bullied at the schoolyard when they when they are when they are little. And Kibung leaves the schoolyard crying to go home and leaves one shoe behind. And and later, like when when they are at least ten years older, if not more, you are being shown that that young Chu uh, still still is is holding holding on that that shoe. And kind of like that the fuck, dude. It's a it's a smelly dirty shoe from a kid who told you to fuck off. It's it's not a treasure of any kind. So just throw it away with that trash. Yeah, well, lust, you know, it's very prevalent. Well, well, well come on, come on. He's a, he's a ten year old kid. I I really I I do know that 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 some people say that they did know about their sexual orientation when they were fucking ten. No, no, lust. No, nor any kind of a homosexual affection, in my opinion, does does not explain why why Young Chu 
hangs on, on, on that goddamn shoe. But then again, I guess that's how it was in school for us also. You choose a specific target of your last stand. It doesn't entirely make sense at the time because you don't understand anything about life. I, 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 Not that I would understand even at this point, but still you make these irrational decisions. I, you know, I, I don't know about you. I, I most definitely didn't have affection or lust towards my schoolmates. And, and I, I most definitely, when, when I was a kid, I, I didn't hold on to anyone's shoe. <laughs> But, the, you know, this character, however, is at the level of affection that he would go to the guy's apartment and then start smelling smelling his fresh out of washing machine clothes, which would not have any trace of really personal smells. But OK, just have to go with it, I guess. I, I guess that there, there is a even, you know, three years into, into, into film podcasting, I have noticed that I, I still run into cultural barrier at times when it comes to, you know, especially Asian movies. Maybe it's attractive that he's the bad guy. No, no, it's not attractive. It's actually becoming a problem to him. Mm -hmm. and, and we noticed that at least he's not such of a bad guy as he first shows to be because he returns the bike then spend some quality time with him, not saying a word and just standing there like a fucking moron. But yeah. Only took took of him like... Half a movie. Way over two weeks. <laughs> a time period during which he also already once sold the said bike. Yeah, and, I, and this is something that repeats in Asian movie, which I quite don't understand as well, is that you have this extremely wooden and hard to reach character and then the rest of the world around him is like... Come out of your shell and just show your true colors and let this be over. God damn it, I want this movie to end type of situation. Uh -huh. And this is the case in Night Flight. This is the case to a degree in White Knight. Why they do it to such of a degree, I don't understand. And it, yeah, it does become a bit irritating after a while, I have to admit. But, but I, I, I guess that, that that all is because, you know, it, it means that you are dark and mysterious. He is dark and mysterious, yeah. I mean, do you remember, Henrik, when you have been watching South Korea from the early 2000s? And at the early 2000s, it seems that South Korean films were still kind of in the vein that there would be extremely long and very distant shots of characters, people talking for seven minutes in one shot and then sounding extremely and extenuatingly boring. Certainly the case in some... Japanese horror films at the time and you would just not quite understand why they have to make it so boring but then after a while you kind of get get accustomed to it but when it's also accompanied by some asshole character who just doesn't want to utter any kind of a word throughout the first 90 minutes into the film you start to wonder is this something that Japanese or Korean audiences really want to see why does it yeah Maybe there's a barrier. Maybe, because I, I too have been wondering that exact same question for, for years now. Sometimes it might be effective. Sometimes it. I understand that it would be economical. As certainly as the when it comes to this director's case, he does want to save time at sets sometimes to, uh, and just making one shot instead of many. 
but not only an economical factor, but the fact that he likes to do long shots, but also he realizing the fact that he might bore his audience if he keeps doing that too much, but it was just his directorial preference. Yeah, but you you, you can you can do one shot and then just, you know, cut it down in the editing room. Take the, take the, you know, trim the lingering more. Yeah, well, all I didn't have that problem. I just, I didn't have a shot lingering problem in Night Flight. I had the problem of general lingering, of moving the plot forward. But the director is a really funny guy, Henrik. I don't know if you noticed. He wrote this kind of a bloggish entry about his experiences around the Berlinale Film Festival in 2014 when this film was pushed out there. So the premiere was at Berlinale Film Festival. And for these two rookie main stars who accompanied the director to the to the party, this was kind of a unprecedented moment where they clearly don't speak too much English and they had never been in such of a situation. And somebody noted during the party that this must have been that this 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 was more extenuating or stressful than actually making the film itself, responding to all the questions of the reporters and being in the Q and A sessions. Anyway, the director was pretty funny in this blog. A director also noted that uh, they were stressing over getting the final cut done to meet the screening schedule at Berlin. And it just came out so that they were not quite able to complete the sound mix of the film. And uh, the director would catch various minute errors that kept him sweating throughout the official screening. But in his understanding, thankfully, the audience didn't seem to catch up on these mistakes. Henrik, did you catch up on these mistakes? I actually didn't. I, I also wasn't really looking for them. I actually did catch those mistakes. I believe what were the mistakes. But of course, this was after uh, seeing this interview first and then watching the film again. So, with that knowledge. Where are the mistakes? Well, I those are just, just like he said, minute errors. Somebody would be pushed down on the, on the floor or on the ground, and you would hear this Tekken or Virtua Fighter type of... Sound when when he falls on the ground, all this kind of a uh, mm, sound effects that sound very stock, something that you would f- hear in a cartoon more than in this type of film. So kind of, some kind of a placeholder sounds that remained. Okay, pretty pretty good catch. Sometimes I've noticed that they release a film at the international film festival, and then they go back for editing booth to do these minute changes and then release it on DVD or whatever. Bigger circles. Yeah, I, I've heard rip, uh, that happening repeatedly with, with festival showings. There's something that you just can't, you know, decide that you're not going to show your film this way, uh, this year and just postpone it to the next year's festival. Yeah. Well, I guess there are many complicated reasons for that. To showcase one way of this director being uh, equipped with a pretty... Pretty nice sense of humor. He would write in his blog the following, quote, Seeing the long line of people waiting to get an autograph from my two main actors after the premiere screening, it was a good decision to cast actors who are better looking and taller than myself 
and I should continue to keep that in mind for future projects. Or, quote, I mean, when would a poor Korean, unable to pay his rent on time, have the chance to travel overseas if it weren't for film festival invites? End quote. He took all the joy out of, out of this trip. Okay. Which film is the official Shibal winner of the night? Which film had the most cursing of with the word Shibal? I think the winner is Night Flight. That was pretty Shibal filled. Filled. That's the things that you do as a film podcaster. Keep a Shibal counter in your notebook. <laughs> that that that's you that that's how you know a quality film podcast when you hear one. <laughs> Completionist as hell. Special mention for an actor goes to. Uh, for my end, it go it goes to to White Knight and Bonte He who plays not the Red Coat but the stewardess. Yeah, or steward. Right. Well, whatever not pilot character <laughs> or profession. The man on the plane. The, th- those who live to serve the others. <laughs> Why was he so good for you? I don't know. I, I think that with him, they, they kind of, I, I only speak, in in half sentences gimmick worked the best <laughs> he, he's he's kind of like like kivung from night flight except he wasn't just just you know as much much asshole as as kivung was and more relatable well at least he has a role that i would be able to pull off with my broken memory wouldn't need to memorize many lines you know special mention for an actor goes to Kim Jae-hung in my part as the guitar for this emotional scenes. This is, of course, kind of his chance to shine with a wide range of emotions in this role. So it may not be entirely fair, but I get a lot of spectrum out of this performance. And also plus points for this somehow animal-like body language when you try to help your... (laughs) friend who has taken your coffee which is filled with sleeping pills what resonates with you most with these films uh at, at the end of a day it would be the power dynamic uh, throughout the episode I, I kept repeating the point that there's a there's a master slave dynamic that pops up with with the with the main characters from one film to the next and i guess you know, picking that up was was perhaps the most resonating aspect, at least for me. Okay, uh, the unexpected twists the films would take, like White Knight and No Regret, and the way these depict not only the societal part within the gay community, but uh, generally within South Korea, especially Night Flight, in my opinion, which iterates the the pressures of success in the school system and shows kind of the stigmatization placed on your entire family even when you do not succeed. People start to scavenge for bad stuff about you. Well, in one adjective, how would you describe this? The films of Isong Huil? Uh, I would have to go with Moody. 
at the end, you, as, a, as an adjective that I will extend to do all films, even though, you know, it, it's kind of hard with going south because in, in that film's case, the perhaps best adjective would be not Sarma. <laughs> but, you know, you know, I, I couldn't extend that to the, the rest of the filmography, so I go with Moody. Not sure if there's any accurate uh, translation for the word Sarma for our international listeners, but something like edge. I don't know. Better not go into that rabbit hole. I have a few adjectives here. Thought-provoking comes to mind. Melancholic comes to mind. Humorous. Minimalistic in certain shots. And probably some smarter than me would be able to come up with an adjective for this, but relying on expressions. So that's not an adjective, but there you go. Favorite quote. I'll go with having crushes on straight guy. It's like having rat poison. Very true. Uh, would you consider to watch Isong Huil films ever again? Um, I don't know. Um, White Knight. Yeah, I I do believe that that one I will I will check out. I don't know about the rest of them. I didn't hate really any of these films. This uh, so uh, this is not that type of answer, but. I, I'm not certain I I will watch these a second time outside of White Knight. Mm. Yeah, I will be returning to to his trilogy, I think, in, in the future. And will show going south to everyone I can. <laughs> I mean, of course I didn't choose to do this episode just so that we could have an excuse to watch going south nope didn't happen but do you think these films have any staying power legacy uh that's a tricky one and i'm i'm not entirely certain what my answer to is i perhaps perhaps not yeah it they are they are like I'm, I'm not saying this because because i i would be making the case that they are bad films they are they are okay films. I I would say it's more with the fact that I don't know if they have any kind of a you know mind blowing aspect to them. At least in a way that that I I found. Well, and uh, if I can interrupt, I think they still reveal some problems that had not been talked in South Korean filmography before things that have not been addressed and i think they are in that way important at least there it may not be anything that's special for a finnish person where these issues have been well you know advanced quite a bit already well that that could be uh, could be of course the case i i haven't found exactly all of these themes being touched before in, in south korean cinema but i have found some of them and and also some of the themes are like as an as an example of, of themes that I've already seen well, well school bullying obviously and some of the themes are of such nature that I haven't seen them in films precisely but which kind of are extremely obvious to me already 
which is for example the the military regulation and how how the organization you know feels about ho uh, homosexual people so like i said extremely hard to say uh, especially especially today when when like you pointed out but gay cinema already has its own own netflix so it's it's not even a rarity anymore necessarily to see see gay cinema um you know who, who knows who knows uh i'm i'm hopeful that they will have uh in, in south korea yeah maybe yeah like you, maybe they will like you kind of indicated with this fancy word it's hard to say because the film market has become so oversaturated but I'm, I'm certain that the gay community will remember no regret as the film that kind of kick-started it all the whole gay cinema in South Korea back in 2006 but but yeah I don't think that film in and of itself is that of a such of a remarkable Feet. I think South Koreans will remember, at least in the gay circles, and will know this director's name as one of the big ones, if not the biggest. And if that happens, you know, I'm I am happy for the director. Yeah, I wanted to note that something about Night Flight that actually the the wanton violence displayed at the end is is an, some kind of an allegory of of a Korean expression. The director didn't then say what the expression is, but Korean expression where violence reveals an issue in the system. And this is very much what the director wanted to channel in Night Flight Finale. And the director said that there's never been a case where you would see violence from students towards teachers on screen. And he believed this could be an issue when it's screened in Korea. Don't know what Korea said about that. Would you recommend the today's scene filmography of Ison Huil? Mm, I would, yeah. Um, as as already mentioned, I don't think these are mind blowing experiences, but I I do think that well, they, they are they are most definitely they are okay enough movies to for for you to check out. I, I don't know if, if this is like best that the gay cinema ha has to offer or if if you want the nitpicky just you know pick the cream of the crop but I do think th no. think that these are you know but they touch on interesting subjects I think that's they they do they do and they, like these are all away around pretty okay pretty good movies so on on you know that merit yeah yeah i do recommend them so there would not be any film that you would not recommend well i would kick la traviata <laughs> but yeah, okay. skip that one uh, the rest of them i i do think they are you know at least good enough that you you know if nothing else comes to mind you can check them out of course, I do think that that some films were better than the others. I I did think that that White Knight was the best, but you know, outside of La Traviata, I I would recommend the rest of the filmography. All right, 
Uh, the director said something interesting in an interview about what kind of audiences he wishes to reach. Quote, Personally, I don't want to focus on films for gay audiences only, like camp films in America. I don't want to focus on films that are only consumed by gay audiences or be confined to that specific area or issue. I want to focus more on universal stories and feelings that appeal to other audiences as well. That's why I tried to make a story like White Knight that focuses more on their emotional sides that can appeal to a broader audience. I think I'd like to continue like that. Uh, I'm thankful if gay audiences like my films, but I'd also like to have a non-gay audience as well. And I suppose that has worked tonight. Yeah, I I don't really see any reason why you know non-gay audiences wouldn't be able to watch these. I mean, certainly, yeah, all, all films revolve around gay love, but when it comes to the director's wishes to touch upon universal subject matters, well, gay love is love, and love itself is a is a universal subject. Yeah, there you go. Okay, would you have any order for the films to put into? Um, I I could go go first with that. Uh, going south, obviously. Uh, I I would put perhaps White Knight as the second, third one, Night Flight, and suddenly last summer, then No Regret, and then La Traviata from Camellia Project. Suddenly night flight, white south, going into the night, no traviata, trying to fuck with your mind. Yo, hey, it's a story out to get. <laughs> well, my my list uh, starts with the, the obvious one. It, it's a white night. You know, who, who could have guessed after all, all this rambling? Uh, from there, uh, my, my second one would be... Well, night flight, and then, and and I I know now we are you know starting to touch upon controversial waters, perhaps when it comes to to film tastes between the two of us, but my third one would be no regret, followed by going south. Uh, going south here perhaps gets gets unnecessary kicks to the head for me. That that's because I I really got distracted by by you know the military regulation breakings so really just because you are you're somehow getting feeling problematic about the fact that military rules are broken and that's yeah that's yeah yeah, yeah. i i i have i have no no problem with 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 homosexuality or, or you know, gay love or any of that, but goddamn, my precious military rules are being broken. Yeah, the precious military that you have been complaining about yourself even before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Precisely, precisely those rules, which that... I also most definitely did not break when I was in military. But you know, I, I'm a film podcaster, and film podcasters are nothing if not hypocrites. <laughs> Yeah, dear, 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 dear uh, listeners, uh, this this is this is the kind of <laughs> yeah, this is this is what the military does to your brain after your service. <laughs> this this is this is this is not the first time that I've found myself in somewhat problematic waters, following you know my stint in military. 
there has been certain amount of discussions that I have had I have had in in course of the years but following going south it it would be suddenly a last summer uh suddenly is is here on fifth place well well because of the the whole blackmail stinge which quite troubled me and well la, la traviata would be on, on on a final slot as as the one film that i necessarily wouldn't recommend from from today's bouquet of films yeah suddenly last summer felt cinematographically a little bit lackluster or hurried or the li most bleak out of these films I found very batonic and gray and a bit dull but maybe that's his personal preference I don't know right do you want to complete tonight's sentence no no but I, I, I guess I have to <laughs> go ahead yeah you really know you are watching films of Isong Will. And you know, just just hold on one minute. I've almost got it, got this calculated. So the the, the volume, as as far as my calculations keeps correct, uh, corre hold water. The volume of forty four semen samples calculated with the weights weights assuming the density of one point zero g kata slash ml which would calculate into a mathematical formula of, of 3.108 plus minus 9.977. With the ejaculation pointing into, uh, where you have to take into account the, the terminal velocity and the nudge that you make on the planet when you ejaculate, that you always by some micro amounts steer the planet out of its orbit to a ever furthering widening orbit which fuck it <laughs> and that might just be the most beautiful thing that has ever been said on this podcast <laughs> <laughs> well you know you 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 really know you have been watching isong will films when you feel you have been thoroughly entertained in a way that you know you get flying semen samples that turn the earth off its, off its course of course you have some humor sprinkled in this you have the dark matter in the no regret you have the societal themes you have violence you have romance is there anything missing really and do you know what you get from those flying sperm samples probably some sophisticated physics calculations <laughs> now, now you get get sons who rampantly break against military regulation. Oh, <laughs> I, I, I think it's it's time we end end today's episode. I'm I'm signing off. Thank you all, your wonderful audience. Best regards to my mom. <laughs> yeah, it's actually quite hard still to go through so many films, even if they are short, for one episodes. Especially when when the well, not all of them were so remarkably short. Nope. Like Night Flight was was over two hours. No regret is two hours. One of the shorts is over an hour. So that that alone, like like half of the filmography was was way o was over an hour mark. 
White Knight was what 70 minutes. We have been watching quite a lot of cinema once again in in time span of of two weeks. And hopefully this has been satisfying for you, because, yes, our dear listeners, as promised in the previous episode, we'll be taking a bit of a break from podcasting, so we will return to the earwaves on August 14th for our three-year anniversary. But take a good rest, dear audience. Enjoy your time outside. Try not to burn into oblivion, as is the case in Spain. Enjoy. Have fun. Eat ice cream. Don't get diabetes. See you in one month. Until then, bye, diddy bye.